Well, thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music today, and welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We continue a series of messages we're doing on the resurrection of Christ, but from the Old Testament. And so this morning we're in Psalm 8, the eighth psalm, which is a very familiar worded psalm, as we will see. And this is message number four. We've been all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We were in the old book of Job, and we were in Exodus chapter 3, and now we've kind of moved up at least uh, to the book of Psalms in the middle of the Old Testament. We're getting closer to Easter. We're two weeks away from Easter, of course, the time, the day that we think especially about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ officially ended the Old Testament. That is, the law was done and gone, and uh, the New Testament had opened, and the church would begin on the day of Pentecost, and you and I, praise the Lord, are saved by grace, and uh, we thank the Lord for it. Today's text that we have, and you have an outline in your bulletin or you're looking at it on the screen, actually three different places we're going to go. We're starting in Psalm 8, and then we'll go to the New Testament to where this passage is quoted twice in the New Testament. This text takes us then from 1000 B.C., where David is writing the Psalms, all the way forward to the book of Hebrews about 70 A.D. and back to the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to go from the Old Testament into the New Testament, from that Old Testament understanding of years and years ago to the bright uh, light and glory of the New Testament and of what Jesus did for us. So Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We we call Jesus Christ the first fruits of the resurrection. We will see that in our 1 Corinthians 15 passage. No one else is resurrected from the grave. Jesus Christ has. And he's the first fruits, which means because he did, the rest of us will. If there's a first fruit, there's a crop coming afterwards. And so he is the first fruit, and we're the crop, and we're going to come and uh, be resurrected eventually also because he was. What did that accomplish? We say, well, obviously Jesus is alive. Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. He ascended back to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. We know that's true, and that uh, is one great accomplishment of, of his resurrection. But beyond that, what did it accomplish for you and me? We have atonement from our sins. We have our sins paid for through the blood and offering of Jesus Christ once for all. And that blood can cleanse us from our sins, atone us, if you will, and give us everlasting life. That is the first blessing that we have. Not only that, salvation is by grace because he paid the price. He did the work for us. He was the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We come to him on his merit, not on ours. We come simply uh, by faith alone through grace alone. And not only that, but then one day you and I will be resurrected. So even when we die or we put our loved ones in the ground and, and we know that to be absent from that body is to be present with the Lord, but that body someday will be resurrected and put back together with that spirit. And that is the 
the, uh, the perfect life that you and I then will live throughout eternity. Because of his resurrection, we will one day uh, be resurrected. And so grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that that's true? You know what else we, we know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That he will one day have dominion over all the earth. When he returns and he rules on this earth and reigns on this earth, he will have dominion over it. That brings us to our passage in Psalm 8, as we will see the word dominion there. Well, not only will he have dominion over all the earth, you and I will finally accomplish what God has instructed us to do, and that's to have dominion over all the earth. We will have it through and because of Jesus Christ. I want you to do something with me first, and that is holding your place here to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, and let's start there with that mandate that God gives to Adam and Eve, and therefore to all people, to have dominion over all the earth. We'll start in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Here is the Garden of Eden. No sin has entered in. A perfect world, just as God created it. And in verse 26, he says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, let me stop there and, and say, we're going to see that word man in Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of? And the son of man. Well, understand that man here is the word Adam, and it really means mankind. And all of mankind are going to be created in God's image and likeness here, right? But notice the next pronoun, let them have dominion. Well, wait a minute. Create man, we know Adam was created. Let them have dominion? What does that mean? It means that mankind is male and female. Mankind has a them to it. The man has a them. Let them have, and here's our word, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And here's a very familiar verse, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then notice again, male and female created he them. Boy, if there's ever a verse that we need in the day and age in which we live, that's the verse, isn't it? Male and female created he them. Mankind is male and female. Of course, at that time, there was one man and one woman. Uh, but out of them would come the whole human race, all of mankind, male and female. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, the thems again, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. There's what we call the dominion mandate. Adam, here's your job. And added to that were other things like, you see these trees? You can eat of these. You can't eat of that one. Uh, here's the garden. Take care of it. And all of those kinds of things. Now, I want you to go to chapter 3. So just a page further. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Well, guess what happens? Sin happens. Adam and Eve sin. And God brings them before him now 
and he's going to tell them what has happened because of their sin. Verse 16, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, when he made Eve, he said to man, it's not good that you will be alone. I'll make a helper for you. And remember that the first thing that he had, the first thing that of the dominion mandate that he said to Adam and Eve is multiply and replenish the earth, fill the earth. So they've had that dominion, but guess what they have to do it with now? Pain and suffering. Uh, it, it's going to cause pain. And unto the Adam, verse 17, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. That looks like my garden. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And so guess how he is going to have to fulfill his uh, dominion mandate? In the sweat of his brow. She, by, by pain, uh, giving birth to children, and he, by the sweat of his brow and the pain of his body, uh, being able to take care of God's earth. So let's go back to, to the psalm here, Psalm 8, then, and understand what we're looking at here. This dominion mandate is explained, then, in our passage in Psalm 8, uh, as we have the word dominion here a number of times. And so I want us to look at this and notice my outline that I have in front of you there, that we're going to talk about the mandate given in Psalm 8, but then the fact that it's incomplete when we turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and then finally it will be completed when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're going quite a ways across the uh, scriptures to see this very quotation. So again, Psalm 8, 3 through 6, we read that in our service a minute ago, but let me just uh, read it, these verses quickly again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and then he stops and says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. And here is almost a, almost a direct quotation of Genesis 1. All sheep and cattle, the beasts of the field, the bird of the air, the fish of the sea, and everything that passes through the sea, everything that moves on the face of the earth, Genesis says. So notice uh, a few thoughts that I have here about this that we need to understand. Number one, God's world that he has created and put man into. God's world for man, back up in verse 3. When I consider, now by the way, this is David writing. His name is on the top of this psalm. And David uh, is writing in about 1,000 B.C., so a long time ago when David lived. But notice how he begins and ends the psalm. If we go back to verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Last week we considered the two words, Lord and Lord. Lord with capital letters and Lord with uh, small letters. 
that one is Yahweh and the other is Adonai. And so here, uh, O Lord, Jehovah, uh, our Lord, our God, how excellent is your name. And then what is the last verse uh, in verse 9? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Yes, verse 3, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, when I look at God as creator, don't you like the word finger there? God creates the world with his fingers, not only that, but in verse 6, with his hands. I think that means, of course, that he did it. In six days, he created everything. Maybe he did just take his fingers and said, and he made the stars also. <laughs> the sun and the moon and the stars also. And they came into existence. When I consider these things, you remember chapter, chapter 19? or Psalm 19, I should say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night, the moon and the stars showeth knowledge. And there's no language nor speech where those things aren't heard, right? When I consider the work of thy hands, I like the fact that he mentions the moon and the stars <laughs> rather than the sun. I think Moses must have uh, many times been out in that desert for 40 years and seen the nighttime stars and the moon shining. Imagine being out in that desert and how many times that you saw that. But here's David as a shepherd too. And David spent many nights out in the fields with his sheep and uh, watching the night go by and seeing the beautiful stars, the moon, and all the sun sets and the sun rises and all that. And I think he, he mentions those things especially because to him, uh, those things showed the glory of God. When I consider these things, I just stop and think about this. I say to myself, what a, what a wonderful God you are. What a wonderful creation you have made. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, when I look at these kinds of things. Not only that, but in verse 4, as you see next, that uh, God has a special care then for the man. What is man then? What, when I look at all of that, what is man? I mean, today we have telescopes that, that take us not to the back of, of the galaxies, but pretty close. I mean, we look so far out there, and then we look at ourselves and say, what am I compared to how vast and big God's creation is? What is man that you're even mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Here's God's care uh, for the man. Now, let me point out again, the word man here, the first one is a broad word. It's pronounced Enosh, and it means mankind. And then the son of man, again, is the word Adam. And so as we saw in the original mandate in Genesis 1, when he creates Adam, when he creates man, he's creating human beings, male and female. He's creating all of humanity. And so when I consider man, the son of man, Ah, what is that? How, how wonderful it is, and yet compared to all of God's creation, I can't imagine that. So here is mankind, men, women, all of us, made in the image of God, and yet specks in God's creation in all that he made. Not only that, he says, what is he? What is man then? I want to show you something interesting. You can hold your place there and go back to Job, the book before Psalms, 
and chapter 25 is a six-verse chapter, pretty small for that, verse, for that book. And Bildad is speaking here. Now, he's one of the friends of Job, and they weren't always the best of friends, but uh, a lot of what they said was exactly right. But look what Bildad says in Job 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. Notice the capital H. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does he light, his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is, notice, a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. Can you, can you get any lower than that? Now, maybe Bildad was not seeing everything the way he should. Man is a wonderful creature. We're better than the worms or the maggots. But what he's saying is compared to God, and compared to all that God has made, what are we? We're not very much in comparison to that. And not only that, back to our verse 4 in Psalm, uh, the fact is, you are mindful of man. You visited him. Notice God's care of you and me. God, God is mindful of us. God knows us. God's, God's omniscience knows what we think much less what we say and where we are and so forth. He's mindful of us, and he has visited us. I mean, he, the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. The sun shines. All that he gives us, including, of course, himself in his own incarnation. He loved us and so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so what, who am I, Lord God, creator, that you would even think of me and be mindful of me, that you, that you would visit this earth for my sake. Who am I? Well, God's care of man and God's promotion of him in verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the angels, and yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. Made him a little lower than the angels? Yes. In what sense? Well, not in some senses. Uh, angels are not made in the image of God, and we are. Uh, angels are not subjects to salvation, but we are. And the angels that sinned never will be good angels again. Uh, they will be in punishment forever. But you and I who have sinned, we can find atonement. We can find grace with God. But there's some ways that we are a little lower than the angels. Number one, they never die, and we do. <laughs> Uh, that's for sure. Not only that, they are powerful, aren't they? Angels are powerful, and we are not. And uh, you don't want to be messing with some of God's angels when it comes to your strength versus their strength. And not only that, they are in God's presence, and we are not yet. They see God. They are around the throne of God. They sing praises to God even now. We're not there yet. And we fear them, they don't fear us. Every time someone in the scripture sees an angel, he falls down on his face because uh, he sees this mighty creature. And so we're made a little lower than the angels that is in our existence and our lifetime and what we're able to do versus what they are able to do. Excuse me. But 
not, but we are yet, he says, crowned with glory and honor. And that must mean, first of all, that we're made in God's image, not the angels. He created us from the dust of the ground to worship him and to live with him forever and to be subjects of uh, redemption forever. And he has given us the honor of having dominion over the earth, not the angels. You and I have dominion over God's creation. And so he, he promotes man in verse 6 to glory and honor above the angels, even though for a while we're made quite a bit lower than the angels. But then notice, as we found in Genesis, that verse 6 talks about this dominion, this mandate that we have. You have made him. You could put the word them in there, couldn't you? Because we have, we have understood now that man uh, was made in the image of God. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. And so man and woman have dominion over the works of your hands. Now, 3,000 years later, at the shortest between creation, when God said this before sin, before the fall, now he says it again, 3,000 years later, mankind has dominion over this earth. God gave it to us. We're supposed to do this. It's our job, you might say, before God. And so he goes on as we read verses 7 and 8, which is, again, referring almost directly to Psalm 1, 26, 7 and 8. You put all things under his feet, that is man's feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea, and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth, every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1 says, you've put all of that underneath him. A new commentary that's out that, that I like and a lot of people have recommended it by Alan Ross on the Psalms. He says this, in short, by God's creation, every human was given the commission and the capacity to rule over life on this planet. The rest of the psalm delineates this dominion, the territory and the subjects, sheep, oxen, all of them, and the cattle of the fields, birds of the air, fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. These are the works of God's hand that are put under the dominion of mankind. You and I have dominion over this. And so what do we do with it? We cultivate the ground. And we should. We should be farmers. Adam was a farmer, and Eve. And uh, we take care of this ground. We tame the animals. They don't tame us. Uh, we even eat the animals. They eat us once in a while, but, uh, you know, we do it on purpose. We create, we build, we go places, we make machines that fly in the air. Animals don't do that. We do, because we have dominion in this world. We use the resources of this world that God has given us to use. And we should, because God put them here for us. You know the name Charles Spurgeon, so if we turn the clock back, you know, well over 100 years, Spurgeon in his great commentaries on the Psalms said this, Let none of us permit the possession of any earthly creature to be a snare to us. But let us remember that we are to reign over them 
and not to allow them to reign over us. Under our feet, we must keep the world. Isn't that an interesting statement? And yet, uh, I think in so many ways, we worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And we let them have dominion over us instead of us having dominion over them. Are we destructive? Yeah. Do we pollute? Yeah. Are we wasteful often? Yeah, we sure are. Yes to all of those things. Can we destroy this planet and this earth? The answer is absolutely not. This is God's world. He made it. He has a future plan. You can read about that future if you want in God's word. There's no way we can destroy what God has made. This is God's world. But will we ever do it right? Will we ever do it right? The answer is not for a long time, but yes, we will. And that's why we're going to turn to the New Testament here in a few minutes to see that. We will do it right, not through ourselves, but through the Son of Man who does it for us and with us. And so though we see here in Psalm, uh, the 8th Psalm how that the dominion mandate is still there 3,000 years later after creation, and we are still commissioned to do this, we're going to see that we haven't done it real well. So I want you now to go all the way to the book of Hebrews. So we have to go to our New Testament, and chapter 2 is all in Hebrews. Our text from this great psalm, Psalm 8, this portion of it that speaks about dominion is quoted twice in the New Testament, not in its entirety, but part of it, although here... In Hebrews 2, you have the fullest quotation of it. So notice chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse, verses from 5 through 9 is where the text would read. But you might have in, your, in your, the printing of your Bible, I do, from verse 6, the quotation from Psalm 8 set off in italics, it is in my Bible. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And here's the quotation from our earlier text. Let me explain real briefly what's going on here. In chapter 1, if you remember this great chapter in Hebrews 1, the writer begins by uh, telling us that Jesus is greater than the angels. He will be the creator. We'll see him as that. He will have dominion, but he's greater than the angels. Don't make the mistake of worshiping angels. Uh, to, to our Jehovah's Witness friends who believe that Jesus was Michael the archangel uh, become incarnate in the New Testament, don't find yourself worshiping angels. And so in, the, in chapter 1, Jesus himself is called three things. The Son of God, he is called God, and he's called Lord. If you see, for example, in verse 5, you are my Son, today have I begotten you. And you see in verse 8, to the Son he says, your throne, O God. God the Father calling Jesus God. And then you see in verse 10, 
And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Son, God, and Lord, all in verse 1. Greater than the angels. Who are those angels? Well, the last verse, they're ministering spirits, and I'm glad for that. They're ministering spirits who watch out for us, but they're not God, and they're not Lord, and they're not the Son of God. And so that's how he begins. And then in, in, in chapter 2, he does mention the angels in verse 2 that they spoke through the law in the Old Testament. If the word spoken through angels was proved steadfast and every transgression disobedient received a just reward. So did the, did the angels now have priority? No, because verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? That would be Christ. And was confirmed to us by them who heard him, God bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. And so here the Lord let's say, has greater authority than the angels, right? That's his theme that he's going on in this book. Now then, why does he quote Psalm 8? What has that got to do with it? Do the angels have dominion over this world? No, they don't. Does man have dominion and the Son of Man? Yes, we do. And yes, he does. And so if it, he can show that, that we have dominion and Jesus Christ was an incarnate man, and he has dominion, then he's greater than the angels. It's another step in the argument in the book of Hebrews. But it helps us to see this whole thing about dominion. And so, as I read from verse 6, and, and by the way, verse 5, I, I should start there. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Not only, not only the existing world, but the world to come and where this earth is going and what the future of this world will be. Has he put all of that in subjection to angels? No. But one testified in a certain place saying this, man and the son of man will be. They will, it will be in subjection to them. And so he quotes our psalm. And we have, again, the word man and the word son of man. Now, I want you to follow down, though, to verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But notice I have in my subpoint of my outline that you're looking at, letter A, the failure of man. For in that, verse, the rest of verse 8, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. We saw that already, but... We do not yet see all things put under him. You know why? You and I haven't done our job yet. We have failed to this point. Not everything is brought under subjection of him. 6,000 years, uh, and now, you know, uh, this long, and we have not done the job. We have not brought the world into subjection to God and done our job of dominion. Man has failed in this. Man, man and, men and women, ladies, I, you know, don't let me not include you in this too. Why is that? Sin in the garden, right? So by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, 
here's what she will have to do, and here's what he will have to do. And it's a lot harder than it used to be in the garden to do this. We have inherited sin. You and I are sinners because we sinned in Adam and Eve. And so you and I have our own problems too. We're sinners. We get sidetracked from our job before God. We fail in our responsibilities before God. And we carry about that fallen nature in us, that nature that wants to sin, that nature that rebels against God, that nature that, that destroys God's plan and, and his world. And so we have all of these things working against us. And we do, as, as Romans 1 says, we worship and serve the creation more than the creator. So we've kind of failed in this. So that's how verse 8 ends, and I like the first word of verse 9, but we see Jesus. And I want you to notice some things about Jesus here. Now remember, what's his purpose in the book of Hebrews? His purpose is to show that he is exalted above the angels. He's exalted above the rest of us. Uh, by the time we end this book, we will see him, of course, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, our Savior and our King forever. We see Jesus, though, and he's writing this in about 70 A.D. or a little before. We know who Jesus is now. We know the one who died on the cross and resurrected and ascended back to heaven. We see Jesus and notice now how he includes our Lord Jesus with us, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, if there are three thoughts that go under this success of the Son of Man, the first one would be his incarnation. He was made a little lower than the angels too. He was made a man, wasn't he? He was the God-man. He was born of a virgin, but born into this world without sin and yet fully God and fully man, fully human. And so he was a little lower than the angels too. And so uh, he had to live on this earth. He had to suffer in this world. And so you not only have his incarnation, but then the references to his death. For the suffering of death, and skip the next phrase because that'll come last, that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man. The suffering of death and the taste of death for everyone. Death isn't always fun, isn't it? Is it? And many times death involves suffering, and for the Lord it involved great suffering. He tasted death, kind of a, a, a way of describing how when you put food in your mouth, you immediately taste it and you feel it, and you know whether you like it or not. You, you have to chew on it. You have to move it around. You experience everything that there is to experience about that food, and then you swallow it. Jesus said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And God said, no, you chew on it. You taste death for every man. And he experienced everything there was to experience about death. So he was man, as a matter of fact, the son of man. And what is Jesus' favorite expression for himself? The son of man. That's the way he described himself. I am one of you. I am come to do what you have failed to do. And so you not only have 
the, the incarnation and the death, but here in this verse 2, his resurrection. And that's what really we're talking about. For he was crowned with death, but crowned with glory and honor. That refers, of course, to his resurrection. Crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of the Father. Let me read Philippians 2, 5 through 8 to you one more time, and you know these verses well. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but was made, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Humbled himself tasted of that death. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, because he has this exalted position, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. He received, here he says, glory and honor. You know these verses. Is dominion complete then yet? You know what? The answer is not yet. He ascended back to the Father. Will he return a second time to finish the job? Yes, he will. And you and I are looking forward to that. He has received glory and honor. He is the man who can do it. Will he do it? That takes us to our last passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And so back to your left you go, back to the books of Corinthians. We want 1 Corinthians 15 and you know it as the great resurrection chapter. I've even preached from this passage last week on the rapture on Sunday night. And now we have what I call the mandate complete. Here's the third quotation, and it's not very long. As a matter of fact, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. For he has put all things under his feet. That's all we get of it. But it's the second time that Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament. Again, I want to just fill in a context here. You know that 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how important that is, and the resurrection of all of us eventually, how important that is. Our paragraph would begin in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and become, there's our word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He rose, we will also. And so the resurrection of Christ is at stake here. And so in verse 21, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Did you see the small M and the capital M? At least it is in my, the one that I'm reading. By man, of course, that's that's Adam, and really that's all of us. Well, by another man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, if you will, came also the resurrection from the dead. And how do we know that that's Christ? Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the firstfruits again, verse 23, one more time. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And so who are those? That's the rest of us. That's the crop. The firstfruits have been offered, and the rest of it will also. And so in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers 
the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule, authority, and power. When dominion is complete, when man has put all things under his feet and under his dominion, it's at the end. Then comes the end after all the resurrections are done. Now, parenthesis in verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. When is the reigning of Christ? When, when will he reign and do that? For a thousand years on this earth. He will return, set up his kingdom, and rule for a thousand years. Until verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And why must this be? So that Psalm 8 is fulfilled. For he has put all things under his feet. And so we have here just two final thoughts, and I have them on your outline. And one is that the Son of Man, then what Jesus Christ came to do is complete, and God the Father, what he commissioned and what he asked us to do is complete as well. I'm not suggesting, of course, that in any way in their character or, or attributes that they are incomplete. I'm saying that he's given this job to be done, and it isn't done yet. And Christ will complete it. And then all that God has commissioned will be completed. And so, in verse 27, he has put all things under his feet. I think that's God the Father has put all things under Christ's feet. Who is then that man, the Son of Man, uh, that you are mindful of? It's not only human beings, it's the human being, the Son of Man, the Lord himself. Notice the capital H's in both cases. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put all things under him, or excuse me, he that put all things under him is accepted, meaning God the Father will never be put under the feet of Jesus Christ. Everything else will be, but they will still be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so everything that he came to do will be completed. But notice then, that God the Father then will be completed. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. When we go back up to verse 24, you have the end of it all. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. Jesus comes and reigns for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, even after all the unbelievers are removed, Satan is cast into the lake of fire, the white throne judgment has taken place, all things are under his dominion and will be forever. And he delivers this kingdom and this world back to the God the Father and says, your job is complete. And God the Father says, thank you, that's what I commissioned you to do. Could you and I do it, folks? We failed. And it isn't done yet. But that man, that son of man came, became one of us, died on a cross for us, was resurrected so that sitting at the right hand of the Father now, when he comes back, he will have the power and authority and the glory to put all things under his feet. And he will live and reign with, uh, for a thousand years. And you and I will live and reign with him. We will be completing our dominion part of it too throughout that thousand years. And then it will be delivered to the Father and all things will be complete. 
There's a statement in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Our headship is under Christ. We work for Him. He will complete it, and we will complete it with Him. And He is under God the Father, and He will deliver all things back to God the Father, completed, done, and all dominion done. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that, He failed. Without that, He can't do it. Without that, He's merely one of us. But the fact that He died and He rose again means that He is God in the flesh that he can accomplish all of this because of his resurrection. So, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplish for you and me? Number one, salvation, right? And absolutely. And I don't mean to minimize that in today's message. I'm just saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplishes a lot of things. And you and I know that his resurrection accomplishes our salvation and our resurrection. But not only that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees us that this world that God created will end up the way God intended it to end up, complete and handed back to God the Father in perfect condition. What a great thing that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I hope you know him as Savior. Going through this world without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, being on the wrong team, being on the failing team, and, and never being able to complete what God has commissioned you uh, to do, you can do it through your Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you know him, and if you don't, you'll accept him as Savior today. Stand now with me, if you will. We'll stand and we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord to, to uh, speak to our hearts as we sing an invitation song. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful good news in the Scripture that this thing of dominion will be accomplished and on the way, Father, your Son will die for our sins and be raised again bodily from the grave and ascend bodily into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for this time when he comes and brings all things to you. So, Father, I pray uh, that we would understand that and let it sink into our minds and hearts. And then, Father, help us to realize that's our only hope, too to be reconciled to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, to have our sins forgiven and know where we're going to spend eternity. So, Father, I pray that this message or whoever is preaching and wherever they're preaching today, the gospel might go out and souls might be saved. Now, Father, bless us. We think about these things and sing songs. And, Father, may we res respond in the way that we should as you speak to our hearts and convict us. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing today, our invitation is open. You may come even as we sing. I'm here at the front or even after the service is closed and others are leaving. I'll still be here. If you have a need, you see me before you leave today. I hope that you will. Gordon will come and lead us in this song.